we're going to go get started. I'm going to leave the door open for just a minute because I think people will be coming in. Have I met you guys before? You do? Well, thanks for coming. New to class. New to class? New to Otter Creek? No. Okay, good. Um, my name's Jane Denny. Um, just to um, get you up to speed, we're, we kind of do a different topic every week. Um, this week we are talking about um, end of life planning, advanced care planning. Um, <coughs> I don't have a great intro. This, <laughs> this is Kate Payne. I love Kate because one, she's a nurse, as am I. Um, she's an attorney. And she currently works for Vanderbilt in the, in the with the ethics department. In the ethics department, okay. yep. So she has a lot of knowledge about this. Um, I'm glad that we're going to record it so people can access it later. Um, well, so I did want to say one more thing. I kind of was hoping um, just about this because um, I'm very excited about this. This this woman who wrote this, um, you can't see this picture very well. She's a firecracker. She came to my uh, monthly meeting last month. She's just moved here from Florida. And she has this Bible study that is basically a six-week Bible study pulling in the scriptures and the faith um, aspect of end-of-life advanced care planning. So in some way, I've got to figure out, I want to do this. I have thought about perhaps the last six weeks of this class, but I really want to give her more press. Um, I've thought about doing it this summer, uh, maybe doing it more than once, but it is, it just looks wonderful. Um, yeah. Even Kate thinks yeah. it looks wonderful because she gets a lot of questions about pulling faith, how do you mm -hmm. pull faith into those in the life discussions. So if she pops in late, um, that's her, but I do want to just kind of give you a heads up about this. Cool. Um, I hope to talk about it more. So I'm going to turn it over to Kate, I'm going to okay. shut the door, and um, thank you so much. For yeah, happy here. to be here. Now, we have some paper on the back table. There's two if you want to pick those up. Um, these are the current forms in Tennessee for advanced care planning. So even if you already have done this, like have a power of attorney or a healthcare document, this is a good sort of place to see if your document says what you want. Tennessee is one of the good states in that they honor documents from all 50 states. So if you've come here from somewhere else, those work for us. Or if you're one of those people that travels a lot and you have documents from Florida and here, uh, that might work too. So. This, these documents have been around really since the 60s, not here in Tennessee, but that's really when they started. And I can remember being a young nurse in Chicago wondering why someone would write down that they wanted to die on a piece of paper. So clearly I misunderstood what these were about. So the, the actual process is called advanced care planning where you set your health care wishes down on paper. You can do it any way you want in Tennessee as long as it's witnessed in the way described in the law or at least notarized. Best way to do that is on one of these forms. And what these forms are are the the ones that are in every hospital in the state. And so if you fill them out at Vanderbilt, they're good in Tullahoma or Watertown, wherever you're going, they're good everywhere. So I'm going to start with this one here that's called the Advanced Directive for Health Care. This is the form that has both living will kinds of ideas and power of attorney kinds of ideas. And they combined it into one form back about 2000. They've kind of revamped it a few times. Back about 2005 is when this one came out because they wanted to make it easy and very portable. So you've got a front page and a back page. And that was the whole point, was to make it very portable. Um, these things are helpful if you have conflict in your family over what people would want. 
if you don't have anyone to make decisions for you, at least you can tell us what you would want if you're at life's end. Um, they're also really helpful if you think your family's going to have a hard time making decisions about what you would want. So they're, they're helpful in that way. You don't have to have paper. Um, you can have a family member that can tell us what you want, and that works too. Tennessee has a, hierarch a recommended hierarchy. It's spouse first, adult children, so someone 18 years old or older. I always think about having an 18-year-old make my decisions, but still, that is it. 18-year-old or older child, um, your parents, your siblings, any other of your adult relatives, and then it also allows for an unrelated adult. So for people that cohabitate, for example, or we get a fair number of people that have nobody but their best friend. So sometimes that person is the right decision maker. It kind of follows the same laws that work for informed consent in the hospital and things like that. But if you have paperwork, this is what we're going to go for. Now, if you fill this out, and for I get a lot of people saying, well, I don't want to burden my family with this. I'm going to appoint my best friend. This takes precedence over all family relationships, so I always caution people if that's really what you want to do. No worries. If that's really what you want to do, but I, you know, if that's what you want to do, if you want to put someone else other than the obvious person, then that's what you can do. So let's start with the top of the page. Top of the page goes your name. The next lines are who would be your decision maker. So when you're trying to pick someone to make decisions for you, you obviously want to pick someone who knows you really well, who maybe even you've had those conversations with, um, someone who can work with the medical team just like you would. So they can kind of roll with the punches and take in different information and decide what to do. There's a primary decision maker and there's an alternate. So when I did this before I had my shoulder fixed a few years ago, I was redoing my documents because I had older ones. So I put my spouse there, recognizing my spouse as a granola crunchy computer nerd kind of guy um, who knows nothing about medicine. Um, I have a healthcare person as my alternate. So you'll notice the language here for alternate says if the person named above can't or won't make my decisions, then I want this person. So there's a little bit of judgment in there for the medical team, primarily your physician, that if your primary person just can't seem to do it, that's really what the alternate is for. Everybody starts with the primary, but being told you're somebody's decision maker can sometimes be a really difficult burden and people just don't know what to do with it. So that's what the alternate is for. So you want to have the same thought process, whoever you're appointing on one of these things, is can they really make decisions the way that you would want them made? Can they work with the medical team and try and make the best decision that the way that they think that you would? And oftentimes I find myself asking people, well, did, did he ever say anything about this? Did she ever talk about this? Or, or tell me what kind of a person your mom was to try and figure out if the current situation is something that that person would want. So once you name your person, there's this other part here that I've started to tell people. It says, when is this effective? I've started to tell people to just mark this out because I think it gets really confusing. It, it got added to the form by a lawyer on the committee because he wanted to make it clear that um, for, you could decide right now if you fill this out, you say, yes, my daughter can be my decision maker right now. But we've had a few incidents across the state that are just now being reported that the patient who's totally able to make their own decisions, totally in their right mind, has one idea and their daughter has another, and we go with what the patient says. So I've started to say, let's just ignore this place because really these things should kick in if you can't make decisions. So that's it. So this is the... the Appointment of an agent, this is what we now call power of attorney, just naming another person to make decisions for you. So let me just pause and see if there's any questions about that stuff. So if you leave that section when it's effective blank? I would just have told people to mark through it, or if you want to be specific, you can say the last box, I do not give permission, and that way it kicks in the way it, most documents like these do. But when, when in doubt, I've told, said to people, let's just mark that out because it's, it's not helpful. 
Because most of us are like that. We, we want to make our own decisions until we can't. Then I want someone who knows me and loves me to make them for me the way that I would make them. Good morning. So it, it, again, it's whoever you want. Most of us are going to appoint our, the people closest to us. Um, if you have multiple people, you know, where you feel like I want to have all my kids be involved with this, most lawyers are going to tell you that's a bad idea, but if that's really what you want to do, you can. What I usually say to people is put the person on the healthcare documents you think could handle the medical stuff the best. Put the person on the general power of attorney, which is for everything else, or executive of your estate, for all the other stuff. So if you've got multiple people in your family that are close to you on that level, spread out the stuff, because there's lots of stuff to do for a person who can't make their own decisions. Just to reemphasize, whoever you appoint on here, if it's a totally filled out properly formed, they're going to take precedent over anyone else. So if you're not appointing family, just really have an idea about if that's really what you want to do. Because even though we all say, oh, I don't want to burden my loved ones with us, me as your family, I feel okay about being burdened with this. I think I'm supposed to be burdened with this. I'm your spouse or your daughter or whatever. So don't underestimate. Most families can do this hard as it might be. So then the next part here, part two, is really what we call the living will section in Tennessee. And instead of sort of writing out a long flowery paragraph, which is what our old documents used to have, um, they tried to give some guidance about what are the kinds of decisions that come up in a living will related document. So a living will related document is a document that about 96% of Americans have heard about. Good morning. Um, and it's really an end-of-life document. It says, basically, if I'm in a terminal or an irreversible condition, then here's what I want, here's what I don't want. Um, and so they give you some conditions here. So you might ask in part two here, right at the top, uh, ideas about quality of life is what this is about. Indicate your wishes for quality of life. I can't read it upside down. And you're supposed to read through these conditions and decide what would be okay for me if this was a permanent condition. So they have permanent unconsciousness, permanent confusion. They're trying to get at dementias, those kinds of things. Uh, permanent dependence in all activities of daily living where someone has to do everything for you. You can't communicate. Someone's doing all your physical care. And then an in-stage illness that whether you get treatment or not, it's going to lead to your death. And you, you're basically supposed to say, yes, this is an okay quality of life for me, or no, it's not. So just for my own self, I said none of these were okay with me. If I was permanently in one of these situations, then I don't want that. And everybody can make their own decisions. I think the hardest ones on here are the middle two. Because I had one guy who was filling it out and his, he had a very uh, difficult lung condition and he knew he really needed to make plans. And so he said to his wife about number two, he said, well, if I'm pleasantly confused, I would be okay with that. She said, what are you talking about? He said, you know, if you have to put me in a home, but if I can still, you know, if I still seem to enjoy things, even if I don't know you guys, I would be okay with that. And she's like, what do you mean if you don't know us? And so <laughs> I think it was really kind of a proxy for this is a really hard conversation. So she was mad at him when he said, I'm okay if I don't know you. And he's like, no, no, I don't mean I'd be okay. I just meant, I just meant, I don't know what I meant. You know, he was just trying to say, if I'm having some enjoyment from this condition, I'm still okay, you know. I would be all right with that. You can actually add extra pages to these things. You can write little things in here, like if I'm happy, it's okay, or for my wife to decide. I've had people, I had one lady fill out four different pages of this, and for each condition, she had a different set of treatments. You can really do whatever you want, as long as you get it witnessed and, and you know, validated that way. So you're supposed to consider all these different things. So I said, no, none of these things were okay with me. And then based on the qualities of life that you select, you're supposed to select what treatments would you want. And the, my life was the same. If I'm in these conditions, then I don't want any of this stuff. 
So everybody has to decide for themselves. Now, why these things and why these treatments? Because these are the questions that come up all the time. When we find patients in these conditions and, and the family is not sure what they would want, somebody on the treating team is going to ask these questions. Is this a quality of life they would be okay with continuing treatment? And here are the kinds of treatments we would have to do. There's also going to be discussion with the physician about whether or not these treatments are going to offer any benefit to the person. So we're, we've been working on end-of-life care in this country intensely for about 25 years. And it's now where we, we're okay, we actually say the death word when we're talking to people and we say, you know, I, I don't think these things will help or I think these things might help so we should try them. So you get to decide what would be okay for you, add extra thinking, but why these things? Because these are the questions that always come up. So let me just pause and see if anybody has questions about this stuff. Or just concerns is maybe the other way to think about it. The default position in America is, you don't have this, we just do everything to you unless it's clear that none of this is going to help. But so this is an opportunity to say, I want this, I don't want this, or I want to try it. Most important thing about this is having the conversation with your loved ones and with your physician or nurse practitioner, whoever does your primary care. Danny. You've said that a couple of times, yeah. uh, your physician, yep. your physician. Many of us like I know. my physician anymore, yeah. especially once you get into the hospital system. Yeah. So what I've started to say to people is the physician doing your treatment. So if it's your surgeon or you've got a hospitalist, medicine doctor assigned in the hospital, that's the person to say, you know, I have one of these documents or I have really specific wishes. So it requires you or your family member to really ask those questions. So in addition to filling this out, Everybody should also have a person that you know can advocate for you because the biggest thing sometimes is not finding these things or not liking them or you need someone who's going to do that and you don't have someone who knows you and this is more and more common. Yeah, they're yeah. not going to know you once you get in that yep. system. So you need an advocate. They don't know you. Yeah. Yeah. And usually our advocate's going to be your first person you've appointed, but sometimes, I've, I've also started to tell people, if you fill these things out, you get them all done, leave a copy in your glove compartment in the car that everybody knows that's where it is. Or give copies to all of your friends who might not necessarily be decision makers, but they would come to the hospital to visit so that someone can put it there. You bring it to us, we're going to scan it into the medical record, so it's going to be there. So if you've been hospitalized anywhere in Tennessee for the last few years, it's probably scanned into their electronic medical record, and you can just ask, is there still this in there? It's from 2015 it should still be in there. And and we're finding that. Yes, ma'am. I ran into a problem I didn't realize. My father's in a skilled care facility, and he needed to be sent to a hospital. Yeah. And I assumed that this... Mm-hmm. Stuff would go with him. Mm-hmm. But when I... Uh, the guy said, now look, and this is when we'd already found Dad was alert. I wouldn't want to think that anyway. He says, but if he wanted a DNR, they couldn't do it. Really? Because they didn't have the right people. So we're going to come back to that question. Because yeah, nursing, but the skill care did not have what they should have sent mm-hmm. for a DNR. Yeah. He says we would have had to go and get him to do it. Yeah, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to this idea. Yeah. yeah, and I'm going to come back to this idea because you guys picked up the other paper for that, and we're going to go over that one too. Well, I was just going to say that kind of tags back on what you were going to say. My um, brother is a, a paramedic and firefighter here in Metro Nashville. Yeah. And uh, my parents live in Nashville, and um, but their health care is in the hospital in Sumner County. Yeah. So my brother said Sumner Regional. Um, yes. Yeah. So my brother said that. If we call 
and actually his his uh, base would respond to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. He lives next. Anyway, so it would be him if he had to respond. But um, he said we would have to do. If you, if you don't, don't have you that, hand us the DMR right. as we walk in the door. Right. We're going to do it. So we're going to come back to this idea. So you guys hold this thought. So that's also, perfect. Let me say this: they cannot transport her across county lines to her hospital and doctors. Mm -mm. Not if something happens so here. We can't call nine one one and get her. We're going to have to take her to a metro hospital. Yeah. Which is and if you remember what Dr. Benny said last week. Providers don't talk to one another. No. Mm -mm. They really mm -mm. don't. So making sure yeah. your doctor has it, yeah. probably not. Which is why I said you need a person or persons who have your stuff. And, and we'll come back to the DNR question. The other thing about this is this thing, even if you say here, well, if I'm in any of these conditions, I would not want CPR, that, that is not enough to have a DNR order. That just tells me about your wishes. So we're going to come back to that. But these are great points. It's, it's just paperwork in the end. That's why you need a person who can help interpret if there's something that just isn't quite right. On a flash drive and you carry it with you? Which is a great point. So Xerox copies or copies that you could download and print are just as legit. Yeah, so that would be perfect. You just carry it in. There's a few places around the country and a few companies that are, have apps and stuff that you can upload your stuff, which is great if you then have access to something to download it, which you could in the Patient Resource Center, or hand it to the nurse and they can put it in and print it out. Yeah. So at least copies work. Good for you guys. Who thought of that? <laughs> yeah. Easy portable on your key ring. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's that's a basic thing. So Tennessee decided you don't have to use this form. Um, the biggest complaint about this form is it's kind of confusing. And and what if I'm not in one of these conditions? Well, you can add your own stuff to this. So if it doesn't speak for you, or if you'd rather have it created by an attorney in a different form, any format will work. There's a very lovely document out of Florida called Five Wishes, which is a little more narrative. It gives you more room to write your sort of thoughts and feelings, which can give your, your treating team a little bit more information about what you might think about something, so you can do that. Uh, the National Right to Life Society has a nice document on their website, which is also has a little more narrative room. So in other words, because Tennessee doesn't mandate a form, you can kind of do whatever you want to speak your wishes so that you would know. We use this one in the hospital because it's quicker. And so if you've never filled one of these out, you've come in with chest pain, you find you have to go to the operating room and you want to do this, you've been meaning to do this, it's really easy to fill this one out. Which maybe that's bad, but this is pretty common across the states. The National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization has taken all forms of all 50 states and put them up there and they have a little ribbon down the side of the form they have that tells you exactly what to do. So it's got a nice, you know, if you're going to go bother your grandfather who lives in North Carolina, you bring North Carolina's form and it tells you exactly what to do. And they're free, you can just download them and print them out. So there's a lot of activity about this. Uh, April 16th in a couple weeks is National Healthcare Decisions Day, day after taxes, death, taxes. Mm -hmm. that's that's where they put it. It's a national day of recognition to urge Americans to get your wishes down on paper. So around the city and around the country you see people doing different things. At Vanderbilt we're actually going to make inpatient rounds for the staff and the physicians to talk to them about it. So this year we're going to focus on the people providing the care and then have some information tables around the hospital. So just different activities just to say to people, hey, have you done this yet? Or do you have questions about it? That's the other thing we do is answer questions of people who might already have it. They don't have an expiration date. So if you fill it out now, if we get it in the hospital, we think that's still true unless we get another document with a, a more recent date on it. 
Every now and then we get battling dates, which make you wonder, are there fabrications? Sometimes. On the back side of this form, it has a little space here for other wishes. So people will write down things like people to contact, or here's where you can find my funeral plan, recognize that this document fits in with some of that. Um, there's also a spot where you can check off to be an organ donor if you want. Um, you can also, that's all gone online now, so you can register to be an organ donor online. Easy to fill out. You sign it in front of two witnesses or a notary either way. The two witnesses, sh I always say the two witnesses shouldn't be family, but you can have one of them be family if they're a very distant relative who isn't going to inherit under your estate. So it's going to be somebody really distant. What I usually say, it's easier just not to have family, have a couple friends. And it can't be the people you've named on the front. It's got to be two other people. So like y'all could witness for each other if you wanted to. All right, let's pause and see if there's other questions about this. Or if that is consistent for you guys that maybe have already done this, if it's consistent while you understand about how these things work. Now, electronically, is there any legal ramifications as to valid, valid as long as it's signed and witnessed or notarized, so when you print out her copy that's on the flash drive, if all that's there, that'll work. So if you've already done this, we had a few calls that when I was working at St. Thomas after the big flood, people called to say, I think my, my documents are in the computer. Can you guys print them out for me so I could come and get a copy because I lost all of that in the flood? Totally legit. So that is the one thing they made was that a, a copy works. Now, I, don't, I can't answer your question like if you just showed it to me and we saw it on the screen, that would be good. The law hasn't specifically spoken on that. So since it, yeah, take a picture and have it on your phone. Yeah. The nice thing about her way is then they can print it out and load it into the computer. But yeah, on the phone would be good too. Yeah, this thing about technology. And there's some apps now that are developing just to load this up. And you'd, uh, what's the one called? Is it called LifeWays? Life files. Life files. Thank you. Thank you. Her husband is one of them. Yeah, so there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very handy. Yeah. Yeah, very handy. So for people. Yeah. We want to talk about technology, all these different things. Yeah. And if you're not a tech person, paper still works. Paper still works. Um, let's see what else I'm going to tell you about these. I think that's everything. Questions? Other questions? Concerns? We have a statement. Yes. Yeah. If you're coming in for surgery, you, yes. Do not expect to have a 30 minute conversation with me mm -mm. about this if you're having a breast biopsy. Yeah. If you're having major heart surgery, we may have this conversation. Because I, I get, I had a 28 year old brought that in the other day, had literally a breast biopsy. And she wanted to have a 30 minute conversation of all the possibilities that may occur during surgery. Mm. And that's what I said, you need to bring your spouse in, we're going to have a talk. Yeah. Now, if you're coming in for heart surgery, coming in for cancer surgery, that's a whole... Whole other animal, yeah. 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 Part of that is understanding yeah. what's going on, and because I guarantee the nurses who have to put this in the computer will not want to have a 30-minute conversation with you about this. They're, they're happy to scan this in. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things on their, uh, on everyone's workflow. Does the patient have a directive? Yes. If they do, do we have a copy? Can we scan it in? Yeah, and, and the, real, the real important conversation is not as you're going off to the operating room. It's before that. It, the real conversation with your anesthesiologist should be about, you know, what should I worry about and how will I be afterwards? What can I expect? That kind of stuff. Same with your surgeon. These things are really meant for when all things go wrong is really how I think about them. Because day-to-day medical care, they don't really apply. It's you don't wake up from anesthesia and then your loved one has to figure out what to do. Or your mama has a giant stroke 
and can't speak anymore, can't feed herself, can't swallow, what do you do? That's what these things are really for. And they really come after a long line of court cases with families saying, my loved one would not want to live like this, and hospitals and doctors feeling like they couldn't stop because it would be wrongful death. So it took decades of case law all the way up to the US Supreme Court to say, actually, we have the right as American citizens to refuse any life-sustaining treatment, even if I might think it's stupid as a provider, as long as you're in your right mind. And the best way to do that is to write it down. If you have specific ideas about the future and you would say, I do not want that, then write it down. Different for kids, this is for adults, so you have to be 18 years old or older to fill one of these things out and you have to be in your right mind. So if, you're, if your mom is already demented and you say, I need to get a power of attorney for mom, she's not going to be able to do it if she's not in her right mind. You're going to have to take a different pathway, probably get a court-appointed guardian if you need legal help. For medical care, families can pretty much be the decision makers for their loved ones. It gets more complicated with adults, but for day-to-day -day stuff, that still is the system that we use. Okay. Other questions? All right, let's look at this other document because this will bring up some other questions. So this one, it's called A Physician's Order for Scope of Treatment. This is also called a universal do not resuscitate order because it applies anywhere you take it. So it's a hybrid between a medical directive and a physician's order where you fill it out in advance of something and the physician signs it. Physician signs it, you sign it, and then it travels around with you. So for people that, say, are going from the hospital to home on hospice and they're going to go in an ambulance to home, this speaks to the paramedics, first responders, what to do if something happens. Same thing with patient home on hospice. This is what we fill out for them when the patient and family have decided they don't want to do that. Or for you guys with loved ones in nursing facilities, you've decided you don't want to do this. This is what you need. And this thing travels around with the patient. Now the, the biggest thing is, is you have to get the physician to sign it to make it work, but if you sign it here, it's good anywhere in the state. So at the top is the patient's name. When we're in a facility, we sometimes put one of their little sticky identifier labels there. Um, ours print out in our system at Vanderbilt and it, it automatically populates stuff, so we print it out of the system for the patient. And then you decide whether or not you want CPR, yes or no, and then how aggressive treatment should be, everything from comfort measures, where we're just focusing on comfort, to full court press, then artificially administered food and fluids, and then who'd you talk it over with? So we indicate that it was the power of attorney or the patient themselves, and then the physician signs it, and then the patient signs it. And then this, we, I give people a pile of copies and have them take it around with them. Or like for you guys, we give you a copy, of, and this would be one to add if that's a thing your loved one wants to your flash drive. This is a very specific tool. It's really, the default position is to do everything. So if you fall out in here right now, we're going to call 911 and we're going to start CPR. If you've made a decision with a physician where they said, I, I don't really think this is going to help. I think we're just going to prolong suffering. This is the tool that you need. It speaks to first responders. And I could tell you a million stories of someone who said, you know, I, my next door neighbor came to sit with my mama who was home on hospice at, at my house. And she panicked when mom started breathing funny and called 911. And they had to do everything. So there's nothing for paramedics that says, I don't know, what do you think? Should we re resuscitate or not? They, they, if the patient's down, then this is what we do. So if there's a plan that you don't want to do that, you must have this thing. The default is do everything. So the nursing facility should have access to this. Yeah. Is, is, is it true in my mind, I've got to keep, every adult over 18 should have this, and it's for 
that you don't wake up from anesthesia. Right. You have the stroke. And it's for if you've ever said, yeah, and you've said, if something like that ever happens to me, I don't want to just linger on on machines because I can. It's really for that kind of a thing. This one, however, the post is really, I am at, I am in the stage of end of life. And I recognize that. And I don't. Recognize and I don't that. want you to restart things. I don't, right. Perfect. That's that's really. That's how they relate to each other. Factor. Right. Every adult over eighteen should have this conversation. And if you do nothing else, you know, sometimes that middle part of the advanced directive is hard to think about. If you do nothing else, you should have a decision maker. At a minimum, someone who, who would be able to have this kind of conversation with someone like me or someone like Dr. Benny, someone who would be able to do that. So even if, even if um, you didn't fill out part two of right. the advanced directive, right. just making that proxy, the agent, that top yeah. section of your advanced is super helpful. Is helpful. Yeah. Even if you don't do the rest of it. Yeah. You have to, have the you have to sign it. Yeah. And if you're not going to fill out the part two, then I usually tell people just put a horizontal, a diagonal line through it. And that just tells us when we get it in the hospital, you didn't fill that part out. You just appointed an agent. Totally fine. At the same token, if you don't have someone for agent, but you want to be clear about what you want, if I'm in a coma, you just fill out part two. That also works. That's really the the genius and the great thing about this, living wills, um, you know, I think we have one. It's 30, 50, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of pages. Got involved. I'm, I'm sorry. Very, very what doctor? Nobody's going to say yeah. that thing. Um, but then also there was the, the medical treatments that I want mm -hmm. and the decision maker mm -hmm. that I want. Yeah. And again, if, if you don't think that, if you can't do it on one, you can make multiple copies of that part two and fill it out different. Like the one lady I got, for permanent unconsciousness, she had her ways for the treatments. For dementia, she had another set. For, and so she had, and they were all stapled together. They were all witnessed. They were all notarized. And she brought the whole thing in. That works too. So clearly she was organized. That's, that's yeah. great. Yeah, this is very specific. It's really specific for... And it's the direct answer to your question. You've decided you, there's been a decision that you don't think resuscitation is appropriate either for yourself or your loved one. It's the exact question she asked. Question. Yeah, okay. If one of these is not filled out, yeah. and, um, and there's not an, an immediate family agrees, mm -hmm. are the doctors, and nothing's ever filled out, right. are the doctors bound to do what the family agrees? So if, you, if we don't have paperwork, med medical decisions, and you can back me up on this. Medical decisions are made really in two places, two ways. One is, really the big one is, what is appropriate for this person and their illness or injury before me? If I don't know, then we try lots of stuff. If I do know, then they do the things that should be, including not doing something if it's not going to offer any benefit. So I guess my question is, Say my brother and I agree yeah. that you know, but the doctor's thinking I can't give up. I, you know, doctors are famous for keeping on going. Yeah. Um, you get to decide. So you're going to need a new doctor. Um, yeah. <laughs> without this, say this is not. Yeah. You don't need paperwork to make this work. Okay, so verbally, yeah. people can say those right. words. As long as the two of you guys agree. Yep. As long as everybody agrees. Because my conversation will be, yep. 
Who else in the family knows knows and is a first degree relative is close to this person? Right. Are we going to have because doesn't like me sitting on it? Okay, it's happy. Um, she she was going to sign him up for chemotherapy trials on the internet and all this stuff. And that neurosurgeon was just very clear about what to do. So he just took the lead and said, "This is what we're doing. This is what we're not doing." Because it doesn't make any sense. So there's that. But it, it doesn't make it easy. So I think sometimes we're looking for what's easy. It's not easy. So if your family's disagreeing, it's not going to be easy. So if you know what's right for your mama and you guys have had this conversation a thousand times or your brother, then you, there's a risk involved. I wish it was easy. It's not. Because a lot of it you get guilt because I haven't been as close to mama as I should have been. Um, for my sister, I think it was, she was a rotten kid when we were younger, so she was trying to make up for that, which is our task as we grow up and be, get wisdom, and she wasn't going to be able to do that. And so this is how she was going to do it by heroic measures, which was silly. So it's really hard. I, you know, no, there's, there's nobody that tells us how to do this. And so when you're actually faced with, this is, this is the only life we know. I don't care how much faith you have. It's the only one we know. And so here we come from the medical establishment saying, you got limited time. It's really hard. It's just really hard. This stuff is actually supposed to make it easier so you can do it and put it away and get on with whatever time you got left and whatever you got to do and you've made decisions about what you want and what you don't want. The harder thing is the case that you guys have brought up with the guilty relative or a healthcare provider who just, they're having a hard time with this. Now, that's where you need an advocate. So there's, there are mechanisms in every hospital that I can think of. There's usually a person, like an administrator on call or a committee, often the ethics committee. In the larger hospitals like Vanderbilt, you have people like me who are, that's our actual job to come and help solve problems. We also have a group called patient affairs, which are like patient advocates. So everybody's got something like that to help you answer these questions. And there's a mechanism to say, this was my brother's wish. We had this conversation a thousand times. This is what I want. And this physician is telling me, no, I want another physician, which is also really hard to do. But you can do it. There's a, there's a mechanism to kind of help adjudicate that. Not everybody agrees with this stuff. That, that, that person, that side of it, it sounds like there's two things. It's like the family that there's the outlier that wants everything. Right. Those problems. Right. But to me, the, the flip side is the physician that wants everything. Yeah. I mean, the family might all be in agreement. Yeah. And you've got, so is that still happening? It's, it's still happening, but not as much. So I mean, this is the especially if some, yeah, if and if you've got the paperwork, I you probably could say this, it's better if you have paperwork. Yeah, people paperwork, feel better. If you have paperwork, you just don't see that happening. Yeah. Okay, that was my yeah. wondering. Are these things that we heard from thirty years ago not happening as much? Okay. And it's because because we've evolved in medicine. We know that there are just some things we can't fix, and now we actually talk about it and and help people plan for the fact that time may be limited. As much as I am into this or whatever that I hear. I go to symposiums, I read the books, I see the documentaries. There's still, especially once you get into that ICU situation, mm -hmm. that it's like they're going to do yeah. everything. So you really need an advocate who can help you ask for, you know, explain to me why we're doing this. So there's nothing... There's nothing that says if once we get your loved one on life support, they have to be on there for a week before you, we will take them off. There's, not, there's no rules about that. There's nothing that says how high-tech it is or how low-tech or how long you've been on it or not. There's no like hard and fast rules about that. It really should be governed by 
we don't really know what this is. So the conversation you should hear is, we don't really know what this is with your brother. We think it's a pneumonia, but it looks really weird on x-ray, so we're going to put him on the breathing machine. We're going to start him on antibiotics. We should know in the next 48 hours, maybe three days, it should be clearer, and then we're going to come back to you and talk about it. And that should be something that you can kind of track. And then you should also hear, if it doesn't get any better, then this is really futile. It's not going to help, and we're going to talk to you about stopping it. That should be a very reasonable, you can kind of go, okay. I got three days, and then we're going to look again at five days. Okay, that's the kind of conversation you should be hearing. And the best doctors that I see, they kind of prepare the family in advance. I think it's worth it right now. I know you think your loved one's suffering, but I think it's worth it. But I'm going to come back to you at the end of the week if it's not any better, because then the suffering's not going to be worth it. That really helps the family to know that there's been like a plan and an assessment. We, we're, we're kind of past the point where we just do stuff to people because we can. We really try and look at and go, is this going to help? Yes or no. If we don't know, we try it. So I, I say that a lot. Well, if you're not sure, we should try it. When will you know? Well, a couple days. Well, then let's relook at a couple days. So sometimes, because, because of all this that's around and because of controversy, people are afraid of what to do and what not to do. But there's, we're just mortal beings. There's, there's, there's a limit to what we can do. For the nursing facilities, I'll be in, it, it'll be interesting to see what they say about this because usually they're asking everybody about these things when they come in. I know this is the only Yeah. Yeah, they don't have anything like that. Gone through a form with them. Yeah. But I like the idea that it says transfer. Right, right. I don't think they have transfer. Yeah. And it's really around what can be managed wherever the patient is and what can't. You know, and so it has instructions to the reader to say, if this can be managed here at the nursing facility, I just want to stay there is really what that translates and into. Yeah, it doesn't help. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah. Not everybody likes these I, things. I just read actually last night in this, the Art of Dying Well. It's a brand new book mm-hmm. come out. Same talking about all the same things. Is that ninety six percent of the adult population has heard of the living world? Yep. And, which is good, I guess. But yeah. Unfortunately, it's like old language. Yeah. It's very fuzzy and. It's which is why we changed ours. Heavy. Yeah. So this this one page really I'm calling it one page. Yeah. Not really good. It's right back. Um, yeah, this one. Just so important. Yeah. So it's easy it's to read. It really does. Take so if you, place you, worry on about the living room. If you don't have to have yeah. a lawyer, don't have no. to have that huge document that you put in your safety deposit box. Don't have to have it. But if you have it and you like it, and it, and this is a good thing to look at the ideas that are in here and look at what you have and say, okay, this still works for me. Then that's fine. And then this is just information. You fill out something like this. Mm-hmm. They give it, you know, a little plastic thing with a magnetic mm. strip. Put it on your refrigerator. Yeah. I usually tell people you should have copies of these things, your medication list, and then you in a big Ziploc bag so you can take all the pill bottles and just shove them all in there in case your medication list isn't up to date and bring it with you. So you should have that somewhere, like in the kitchen cupboard right there, and somebody knows where it is and can grab it. Because these things really don't kick in until after you, this one, the advanced care directive, doesn't kick in until 
you actually get to the hospital and they can assess you. This one is different. This speaks to first responders. So if you've made that decision not to have resuscitation, you need this thing to speak to first responders. Right there, not in your, not in your yep. safety deposit box, yep. not in a folder at the nurse's desk. It's got to be right yep. there. I usually tell people, and, and nursing homes don't do resuscitation. They call 911. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I usually tell people, I give people a pile of these. They usually say, put one at the bedside, put one on your door. In Arizona, they actually have a container that goes in the refrigerator so that one paramedic goes to the patient and one paramedic goes to the fridge to see what's on the orders. We don't do that here. So I've just said, put one up at the bedside, put one on the headboard, you know to speak to first responders. They know what this is, but they're right to say it's got to be properly filled out, be really clear about what you're supposed to do, and then it's got to be signed. And it has a spot here for, to have a nurse practitioner, a non-physician sign it. They only do that when the patient's moving. So if your loved one had to move from the nursing facility to the hospital, then they would sign it if they couldn't get the physician. So somebody's got to sign this. Really, I was adamant that I got this Yeah. I worked in a facility, and they hired me really to get their stuff in order and I'm a detailed person I love doing it but um, and yeah it's a facility the first thing you do is sign that paperwork and get it in your record where I was working you don't know how many of them I was like they had page one not page two they had page two not page one or they're you know I was just like yeah it's to make it easier and right next door was the beauty salon while I was there one day the nurses came running in oh my gosh where's her notebook let me pull it out (laughs) let me flip through the page the lady had gone down in the beauty salon and they were trying to find out is she a DNR or not we don't know what to do and I was like yeah trust me you (laughs) be an advocate for your person because what other questions do y'all have or concerns it's always difficult stuff. I like what you have over here because this is um, the this uh, advanced directive permanent confusion. Mm-hmm. No, nope, they've it changed was it. Recently, I need it was revised. Yeah, it was. Two thousand and five is when two thousand five, two thousand and six is when this form came out, and they used pieces from another form to try and give people more ideas about what are we talking about. So even if you, even if you're the person who just did the agent part, this is still helpful to know what what it is we're talking about and what your wishes are about certain ways that we can be in life. My dad, when he first got diagnosed with his brain tumor, he's like, "Well, I'd be okay if I can still have chocolate ice cream and watch football." Crack me up, you know. So he he's telling you a quality of life kind of statement about we all have, you know, we all think we're going to live forever, but I I have my ideas about even if I'm bed bound, if I could do these things, it would be bearable. That's what that's for. But it's also that somebody's going to ask that question. You know, when when a patient comes in unable to make decisions or doesn't wake up from anesthesia because they just had a reaction to it as happens what is the percentage of that it's rare yeah and they just don't wake up and no nothing's wrong they just didn't wake up had a reaction and nobody ever tells us what to do this gives you an idea of of what would be okay i came in a little late yeah so this lives on the department of health's website if you just google Advanced Directives Tennessee, it'll take you there. For a better version, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization has this form and then down the side they put an instruction column. So you can go there, you have to go to their website and find advanced directives and you can print out theirs. It's more pages, but it's kind of helpful because it reminds you what you have to do. Either way. 
One of the things that I want to do in one of these classes is, Kate mentioned five wishes. Yep. Um, a live hospice has the gift initiative. Yep. I mentioned they use these. Study that I'm very excited about doing it. The same information. I love that it brings in faith because yeah, it helps it, the rest of it. It helps people know. see, you know, it. It's the narrative. Piece. It's the narrative piece that reminds us we're just mortal and that it might be okay to plan. That's how those pieces of scripture that she has in there. It's kind of nice that way. So, hope to do that in other future classes. Yeah. And I did want to let Wayne know next week, Wendy Goldman is going to be here, and we're we'll finally get to the. We're going to talk about dementia. Good. So, so that's next. Yeah, week. it's. I. That's one of just the hardest diagnoses. I find what to do and what your limits are. But I, I still love my guy who said, if I'm happily confused, I'm good with that. <laughs> you know, if I'm pleasantly confused, that's good for me. Yeah, I'm good. She's living right now. Yep. Um, yep. Kate, thank you so much. Yes, for yes, yes. If you guys have any questions, you can just track me down over at Vanderbilt. What is your name and what is your role at Vanderbilt? <laughs> so my name is Kate Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, and I work in the Center for Biomedical Ethics. My primary role is as an ethics consultant in the medical center, but also in the hospitals that are affiliated with Vanderbilt. I go out to them, too. But So I, I teach in the medical school and the nursing school. So she's um, an RN and an attorney. So. Okay. Yes. And that's our primary role so there's a little band of us uh, myself of a philosopher and a, a intensive care physician and we're the primary people that respond to that and then we've got an ethics committee but the bigger hospitals especially places with universities tend to have the more elaborate mechanisms cool but if you think of questions you can just look me up